1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, and I mean simply everything, has its own history, like duvets, grass and avocados. Or, Sam, print, flint and the hint.
2: So the hint is all about subtly suggesting things. Do you think you should have an extra (laughs) slice of cake, Professor Daybell? (laughs) Uh, It's actually the history of passive aggression, which I think would be great. Or... Lint, mint and skint. So skint is all about the history of being broke. It's about poverty. And I'm sure this is something that relates, people can relate to during lockdown. However, this is to digress because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example? Who knew, Sam? Well, you did. But the history of nicknames is in fact all about the Vikings. The Vikings politics, the history of marriage and childhood. I had some very evil children with me at school who were merciless in their nicknaming of me. Or that the history of leather is all about exploration, transatlantic gender relations, it's about Iberian sheep, and it's about being given five pounds and being told to go out and buy something interesting. (laughs)
1: <laughs> what? Yes, did
2: you know that there, there is there is in fact a National Leather Museum, which is based mm. in Northampton, and it was started by the most remarkable man, who gave his staff each a wad of cash and basically said, go out and buy interesting leathery things. Well, uh, oh, that's so cool. They did, and the museum is simply stuffed with them. <laughs> and I want to do a an episode on leather. And of course, leather, the history of leather, how could we forget is all about gloves. It is
1: absolutely I came across a wonderful glove quote the other day I've just realized I need to send it to Oh, yes, please. Um, for our new listeners we've had uh, so many recently um James is obsessed with the history of gloves you will discover that as you listen to our podcasts. Anyway, um I should introduce him really. The man he's not sitting opposite me because we're still recording at the other end of town um because we're social distancing. Anyway, he is let's let's call him the Freddy Krueger of history. <laughs> Thank you. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. I'm slightly
2: terrified of those Nightmare on Elm Street uh, movies. I remember sitting in (laughs) form time at school and having them described to me in vivid, vivid detail. Uh, And I have to say, I have never seen them because I'm far too fearful. However, the man not sitting opposite me because we haven't dared... Uh, get into the cramped space of our recording studio, and he is across town. He is the historical gladiator of the archives, the man who puts the fear of God into other historians. <laughs> so sharpened and honed is his trident of historical inquiry. Yes, it's the famous historical adventurer, Doctor Sam Willis. Willis, even <laughs> gosh, that was quite that a was mouthful. so good. <laughs> Apart from the last
1: bit. Yes. Uh, (laughs) I um, I obviously need another drink of coffee this morning. I think you might do. Uh, Hello, everyone. Uh, It's really nice to be back. We have um, had a bit of a break because of the hiatus of the world and COVID-19, but we're back now and we are going to be carrying on. We'll be releasing an episode a week. I very much hope you got stuck into our homeschooling specials we did during lockdown to help all of you um, trapped kids and trapped adults with trying to understand the world of the past in a new way. Uh, really enjoyed doing those um, and they're great fun to, to 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 listen back to. But we're going to be carrying on um now doing traditional histories of the unexpected, episodes in which we will take something that you don't suspect has a history and we will prove that it does. And today we're doing something that James and I have both wanted to do for some time. And I think it's uh, particularly appropriate to be doing it now because, well, the world seems to be full of fear. At the moment, um, there's a great deal going on in the news um, and there's a lot of people sitting at home being fearful about what they're reading in the news. So we thought it would be a good time to do the history of fear. James, I think this is one of your ideas, wasn't it? It was one of my ideas. Yes, yes. And um, and I have had
2: uh, a very busy time during lockdown and I have been reading all sorts of stuff and I am stuffed full of history and I am <laughs> I am just itching to disgorge it in podcast form. Uh, I've been reading about all sorts of, all sorts of things, mainly to do with gloves, um, but, um, you know, but there's, there's lots there. But, yes, this history of fear is something that I've been wanting to do for a very long time. Um, it's something that's very you know, of the moment, as you said. I mean, not only because of the COVID pandemic, and I think people are quite rightly fearful, but also because of global warming, which is, frankly terrifying in itself. I think also when we look at what is happening in the political world today, the social media world, the the sort of world of popular politics, I think fear is being used as a political weapon uh, to mould and to shape and to influence uh, voters around the world in really, in, in ways that are terrifying, but also that are fascinating. Uh, to the political and, and historical observer. You just need to look at what's going on in America. And I'm a very, a very avid uh, viewer of what's going on in the presidential campaign there. And what was interesting looking at the Republican convention was the way in which fear is being peddled to the masses there. You you listen to that sort of couple of days and it's the way that they are demonizing uh the um democrats we're not taking any sort of political uh standpoint here this is just a an observation but the way in which uh the democrats are being demonized the way in which they're being pigeonholed in a particular way the way in which a lot of the violence that's on the street is being you know is being leveled at at biden um, it, it's just extraordinary to to sort of think of of that. So that was one of the things that... or um, well, those were sort of three of the things, I suppose, that led us to sort of think about doing something on the history of fear. Um, and in particular, I've been reading a book by Joanna Bork called Fear, A Cultural History, which really got me wanting to do something on the history of fear. I'm partly reading this for another project that I'm developing at the moment, but it is a fantastic cultural history of fear over the long 20th century in Britain and America. The long 20th century basically means it bleeds into the 21st century. So there's all sorts of stuff about about 9-11 and and terrorism uh, threats, but also it sort of goes back into the 19th century. So it's a sort of, you know, a sort of uh, 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 culturally a uh, capacious way of looking at a topic over a broad period. And and what it argues is that fear is a hugely pervasive emotion and one that has a really profound and entangled history. And it connects to all sorts of other emotions, such as jealousy and dread and consternation and surprise. And it's very hard to unentangle. I think one of the big powerful things coming out of it is that it charts a shift over the long 20th century one that essentially sees in the past people having fearing for others so this kind of more paternalistic sort of th- thought about fear fearing of what will happen to others a move towards in the 20th century the fearing of others and we and we can see this in various ways and i've already talked about um the way in which the the alt right in the united states are doing this today, but also if you have a look at the way in which um, something like, um, you know, the way in which feminism was demonised and targeted in the 50s and 60s. I've just finished watching the brilliant uh, uh, televisation of Mrs America, uh, which was quite extraordinary, Uh, and there what you have is alt-right conservative uh, women who... Go up against um, feminists who basically want to pass an equality act, and the way in which they go about that is to absolutely demonize the feminist cause and and really totally misrepresent them, seeing it as sort of behind the disintegration of america um, but I think it's not fear isn't something that's necessarily a new thing well it 's not necessarily a new thing it 's something that we've you know that has been there throughout throughout history. You know, you think about de- the demonization, the fear of others, whether it be witches, whether it be women, whether it be people of different ethnic or religious backgrounds or people with different sexual orientations. It's always been there. Um, but what the book does, it argues, especially in the light of the kinds of sanctioned torture of terrorists that we've seen, it argues, and I'm quoting here, authoritarian, indiscriminate and disproportionate responses have become the norm Public policy and private lives have become fear-bound. Fear has become the emotion through which public life is administered. It is time we return to a politics which feared for the lives of others near and far. Although fear is humanity's inheritance, trembling is our testament. We must always tremble in the face of the stranger, glimpsed beneath the rubble of history so it's a real kind of clarion call for a sort of you know socially minded form of history now the book is really wide ranging in what in what it looks at what it doesn't do is look at things like arachnophobia and 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 the fear induced by horror films or roller coaster rides or extreme sports instead it's organized into five main themes and it starts by looking at prevailing fears and anxieties so those kind of underlying things that are just shot through society. So fear of death and fear of disasters. It then moves to look at an individual response to fear. So it looks at childhood fears, nightmares, phobias. And central here, because I think there's a form of quite sophisticated psychohistory here, it's actually understanding those different fears from a psychological point of view. Part three looks at mass media's role in inciting panic, so social hysteria and fear. Um, And then section four looks at military threats. And this is a fascinating uh, part of the book where we have a look at the the shift in fear in terms of combat, cities under siege and bombardment. And then there's sort of something that happened in the second half of the 20th century. It's this fear of nuclear threat. And then there's also... Um, realms of anxiety this is the final part of the book where it looks at contemporary fears with crime disease pain the environment and also how fear manifests itself on the body and it ends with the discussion of terrorism and globalism globalization of of risk so it's a hugely wide-ranging book with massive Massive themes that run throughout it about how we define fear, that fear isn't something that is universal, but is something that is distinct within particular periods. There's a prevalence of war in the book, so three out of the 11 chapters are on war. It charts a really fascinating shift from religious fear to scientific fear. So effectively, what you have is fear of God, and what God will do if you behave in a particular way? To fear of microbes and germs. Um, it also, and I was very interested to read this in light of some of your interests, Sam. It also talks about the face of fear, so Ooh. and and talks about Guillaume Duchenne's uh, experiments, the electrocution in the face, and the the way in which the emotion of fear was expressed in in visual form. So there we are. There's a sort of little sort of. Um, little sort of uh, 2 penneth, uh to start with on the cultural history of fear. But you should all go out and read this. Joanna Bork's Fear, A Cultural History.
1: Well, I mean, as always, I we, we both like to start um, with what we're kind of doing at the moment. And it's interesting that you're doing that for another project. I just made a little list of what I've been doing over the last three or four months. And one of the things that struck me is that a theme which links all of them, surprisingly, is fear. So uh, this mm. is just a little brief idea of what I've been doing over the last few months, um, giving you a sense of what it's like being being a jobbing public historian. Um, I've, I've written a, a an introduction to a series of books which are going to be published by the British Library on highwaymen, pirates and rogues. We're re- reprinting a beautiful first edition um of a, a book of criminal biography, which the British Library have, um, and that's a really interesting uh, book, which makes you think about the public popularity of dangerous people, uh, essentially. And 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 I think the way that the public dealt with that, the readers dealt with that, was was a way of kind of assuaging their own fear of of what these people brought to society. What a wonderful list here. Um, we've done the high Women. I've done my pirates one. So the lo- next one I'm writing an introduction on is on rogues. So they're sort of not highwomen. They're not pirates. They're something else. Here we have Sawny Bean. He's described as a robber <laughs> and a cannibal. Um, the Waltham, the Walthams, or the Waltham Blacks. They're deer stealers. Uh, who else have we got? John Collins, a general thief. James Filewood, what a wonderful name. Pickpocket. Robert Fuchs is a murderer. Anne Harris, oh, a female swindler. That's going to be interesting. Nan Hereford, also a female swindler. Anne Holland, a pickpocket. Louis Hussart, a murderer. And it goes on and on with a huge variety of thieves and robbers and murderers. And... Um, So that's one aspect of what I've been looking at, and part of what we do here on Histories of the Unexpected is to open windows into the various ways you can think about these themes in history. So I just wanted to make the first point that there's a fascinating uh, early first quarter of the 18th century changing business in the world of publishing, where it's like the early history of true crime suddenly comes about, and these a lot of these are crimes against property. Don't forget that. But at the same time, a crime against property can be, punishing, be punished by, by being hanged. So there is a very vivid and, and growing interest, which is making some publishers a huge amount of money of the public in their own fear about the challenges to society brought about by all of these criminals. Now, as well as that, I've done um, a fair few bits of filming and listen to this for a ramble of stuff I've had to talk about, James. I've had to talk about the history of ghosts, werewolves, the curse of Tutankhamun, the Great Flood and Atlantis, Hadrian's Wall, the Great Wall of China, Gothic cathedrals and castles. Among other things. <laughs> You've done all of those yes. during lockdown? Yes. Goodness me. It's completely ridiculous. Um, but th- there's a really interesting theme in uh, the, the idea that, that fear actually links all of these together. Um, any of those you'd like to hear about particularly, James? Castles. Castles? OK, well, we've <laughs> talked about castles before. Uh, well, essentially, well, what you, the, you pick. You, you can pick. Oh, I, I, I'm um, just a nerd. I will briefly say something about castles. Um, The idea here is that the Normans uh, invade England in 1066, and then they set about building castles in very noticeable places all over the landscape. It's a culture of fear. It's a culture of oppression um, to prove that there are new masters in town. They're making a symbolic... Uh, statements about who is in charge and they want to instill a sense of fear a sense of obedience and a sense of control throughout the country so that's your link uh, of fear with castles I was quite interested in um, in the great flood (laughs) talking about the history of the great flood and people actually there's, there's a fascinating history of people actually searching for what they believe to be Noah's Ark uh, which which is um that's a real history in itself the the real history of people trying to find the ark then there's an interesting um theological history about what about the ark what it mean, means to what why it actually features and one aspect of it i've become really interested in, in is the this idea of so many cultures in the ancient world living by the sea or living by water. Um, As we know that I started my life as a maritime and naval historian. And um, this idea of water is really kind of fundamental to my whole business of being a historian. So why do you need water? Well, you need water, uh, fresh water for drinking, fresh water for cooking, fresh water for cleaning. Uh, If you live by the sea, then you've got access to rivers to navigate, rivers to trade. It's all to do with interaction and the growth of society. There's very sensible reasons to, to live by water. So you have all of these societies who live by the sea, who live by water, and they are susceptible to floods. They're susceptible to having their whole society being torn a- apart, um, much in the same ways that you you, you read in the modern day about uh, rising sea levels and the danger that, that people suffer from, from significant sea level rises. Now, I want to talk to you briefly here about um, a Mesopotamian legend which is made manifest in the Epic of Gilgamesh. So this is thousands and thousands of years old, significantly predates the Bible. And there's a tablet which records the Epic of Gilgamesh in the British Library. And one of the most important things about it is that it includes a flood myth. In much the same way that you have the flood myth in the Bible. So we know by reading this tablet that fear of flood existed long before the Bible and that it's further proof, I think, of the way that the Bible has taken stories from deeper in history and it's integrated them into into a new whole. So that was one of the most interesting things I discovered whilst talking about, about the Great Floods. Um, but apart from that, I've done all, all sorts of these wonderful things. Hadrian's Wall, that's about the fear of outsiders as well. The Great Wall of China, again, fear of outsiders. Though the the, um, the Picts living in Scotland and the Zhongnu of the Northern Plains of China are rather different, different creatures. So, uh, James, I'll leave it there. But um, yeah, months and months of doing a variety of things, all of which are linked by fear. Goodness me, I've basically been uh, writing and reading about gloves all summer.
2: I've been very, getting very excited about the uh, about emotional objects. About,
1: well, hang on, while you're talking about gloves, right? I've actually okay. I've got a new thing that I'm I'm scared of. Okay, uh, what are you? What are you scared of? I uh, I'm going to talk about that later on. Uh, I'm scared. Of, okay, I'm fine. scared of heights. Okay, well, I, I'm actually scared of heights. Are well. you? But um, you go. But I've got. A, I've got. A, you go all sorts I've got of a dangerous thing I'm places. Of. Ah, oh, yes, but you've got to overcome your fears. I'm quite like Aristotle from <laughs> Oh, I'm rubbish. I'm so passive. Uh, my beliefs. I give in to them right, entirely. Go on. This is a new thing I'm afraid of. OK. Um, I'm afraid... I'm afla- <laughs> you shall, my dear Emma, have no reason to be ashamed of your own Nelson. I send you the comb which looks handsome and a pair of curious gloves. Ooh. They are made only in Sardinia of the beards of mussels.
2: Oh. <laughs> God, they—they, they, you—I think you'd need—you'd wow. need to perfume those gloves. I think.
1: <laughs> you would need to perfume them, but I am now—I am scared of gloves that are made of beards, the beards of, muscles. of muscles. I that's, imagine having your face stroked by a glove made of the beards of muscles. That's that makes my skin crawl. That's
2: really yes. That's a niche glove fetish, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It really yes, is.
1: Anyway, I'm it going is. to talk more about that in our next podcast, where we're going to be talking about humiliation. Oh, lovely! Um, so anyway, lovely a little teaser, teaser for you there. James. Lovely. Well, um, I'm going to talk now about war,
2: um, and pick up sort of the mid part of that uh, book on fear by Joanna Bork. And one of the arguments that she makes is effectively that that war, fear associated with war has changed across the long uh, 20th century. And what she argues is that you move from um, uh, pre-World War I, you have much more sort of hand-to-hand combat. Uh, So people fighting sort of hand-to-hand. With the advent of technology, what she argues is that things shift because when you are kind of pitted up against somebody face-to-face, it's literally either you fight or you flee so fight or flight and the natural response is basically to overcome your fear and to fight whereas as soon as it becomes more mechanized as soon as technology adds that kind of distance there's a sort of sense in which you have that time to fear and to worry about what's going on so with the with the the sort of the shelling in World War 1 the sort of distance of um you know, of trench warfare, things become very sort of, there's a, there's a charted shift there. And then by the time you get to the Second World War, you've got the, the use of bombardment on cities, and war hits the domestic population in a way that it hadn't done before, and so you're dealing with fear and war in a very different way there, you know, so going down to the air raid shelters and all of that kind of thing. And then... In the post-World War II, uh, with the the invention of the atomic bomb and the dropping of the bomb on, on on Japan to end the war, you've then got this sort of borderless fear of nuclear war. So something that is basically there as this sort of spectra of threat that will basically lead to... There's a big concern about nuclear holocaust and the end of civilization and the world as we know it today. And I want to talk a little bit... About these about these different things. Um, but to start with, I want to talk about uh, uh, an example uh, that heads chapter seven on combat, and this is a tale of a, an American young American soldier called William Manchester, and he finds himself sort of you know airlifted to um, the island of Okinawa during the Second World War, and. He has to enter into an act of real bravery because basically he finds one day that there is a sniper placed in a hut who is basically killing all the men in the neighbouring battalion. And he notices him in a in a fisherman's shack, thinks that he's going to be there. And he decides that basically he need we need to get rid of that of that person. So they need to find um you know, where this person is. They need to go and find him. They need to remove him in order to stop this this happening. Now, for him, he's... Uh, we know this because of the personal accounts that survive. He's not a particularly brave individual. This is somebody who, you know, shied away from bullies at school, didn't get into fights, and now he is in a situation where he needs to deal with this sniper. Now, he could, you know, get uh, the other men to do it, but maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. Um, He could just timidly run away, Um, but basically what he decides to do is to take this on himself, despite being utterly, utterly terrified. And he describes taking a deep breath and sweating with the greatest fear I had known till then, and he basically heads off towards this fisherman's hut, zigzagging, dropping down, sort of hiding every sort of, you know, dozen or so steps, he approaches the the hut, realising that he's forgotten his helmet, which leads him into an utter panic. He's utterly terrified. And he describes, I could feel a twitching in my jaw coming and going, like a winky light signalling some disorder. Various valves were opening and closing in my stomach, my mouth was dry, my legs quaking, and my eyes out of focus. So we've got there the kind of the the impact of fear on the body, and that's something that is fascinating. How do you how do you recover that? He breaks into the 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 hut, kicks down the door, finds the sniper there, um, and luckily um, the the sniper's rifle gets tangled in his in his harness. He shoots at him, um, and first of all misses. But then, and I quote, "...the second shot caught him dead on the femoral artery, his left thigh blossomed, swiftly turning to mush, a wave of blood gushed from the wound, then another boiled out, sheeting across his legs, pooling on the earthen floor, he emitted a tremendous raspy fart, slumped down and died." And in a panic, he just keeps on, keeps on firing, he's ga- gagging, um, and he he writes, Then I began to tremble, and next to shake all over, I sobbed in a voice still grainy with fear, I'm sorry. He then vomits, urinates, wondering, is this what they mean by conspicuous gallantry? So there's a real sort of sense in which his his fear it, it doesn't stop him doing these kind of acts of bravery, but yet at the same time, He has this sort of consciousness that it's the wrong thing to do, that it's utterly terrifying. And his body just, you know, despite all these sort of tales of bravery and everything, it is, it's a really sort of visceral uh, engagement with war in a very sort of, you know, very sort of. uh...
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
2: A very uh sort of direct way and i think one of the things that that the book argues is that war is a persistent feature of warfare and there's a section where it looks at interviews of two combat combat infantry divisions uh in during the war um and there's a series of interviews and they found that seven percent said that they were never afraid however in direct opposition to that, 75% of the men cl- complained of trembling hands. 85% were troubled by sweating palms. 89% tossed sleeplessly in their beds at night. And this is something that psychologists, military psychologists, medical officers have had to sort of deal with uh, throughout throughout combat. How do they deal with this? How do they treat it? And fear in war is something that goes... that. that you know that fear in war is something that you have to deal with and you have to you have to overcome. And there's a there's a sense that as we get a a, a military that is less professional and a military that takes in more and more recruits, what you're getting is a more highly educated uh, type of soldier who's much more conscious about what they're doing. And there's an extract from as late as 1976 in the Army Quarterly Defence Journal, uh, which laments the passing of armies of the pre-1914 era. And according to this analysis, before the First World War, men were of stronger fibre, less influenced by cultural and soft social conditions, and often lacked the faculty for deep thought, which drew no picture of danger or feeling of fear. It might be said... That such men possessed a natural courage, which really was a courage of insensibility to danger. So in other words, people, are, soldiers are becoming soft and soldiers do not have that kind of battle hardiness uh, that that sort of that overcomes fear. Now, moving on, I just want to talk a little bit. I want to move on to talk about I'm going to skip over uh, the bombardment of cities But what I want to do is talk about nuclear threats. And so the spectra of of all-out nuclear war that will lead to Armageddon, that will lead to destruction, nuclear holocaust, fear of um, radiation poisoning, end of life on Earth, as we know it, is something that haunted the Cold War era. As soon as the Russians developed nuclear weapons, there was a huge fear about what would... What would be the result of that? And we looked at the Cuban Missile Crisis um, in one of our homeschooling episodes. But did you know that on the morning of the 8th of February in 1951, at 10.45, enemy planes dropped nuclear-primed bombs over New York City? A sixth-grade teacher in public school 75 on West Eastern Avenue, responded promptly to what was a sudden white flash, ordering her young charges to take cover. And children basically threw themselves on the ground, curled into tight balls, their backs to the windows. Within less than a minute, the attack was over. And do you know what this was? It was the first no-signal nuclear drill in America. It was something that terrified children absolutely terrified them didn't know that this was coming but yet in early 1950s this was something that they wanted to prepare for the children hadn't been told and they i mean it was really quite brutal and many of them were really scared of this and some of the teachers behave you know behaved in in what is a, a sort of terrifying way and one of them was yelled at a, at a small boy during the drill. Your arm is burned off, your right leg is gone and half your face is burned away. And th- the child became apparently almost hysterical with this because what they were trying to do was get the kids to take it seriously. Um, so, and there's also uh, uh, an interview, a survey in the early 1960s, where they interviewed 350 children and they were asked to... Think about, and I quote, think about the world as it may be about 10 years from now. What are some of the ways in which it may be different from what it is today? And without any prompting, 70% of these children mentioned, without being asked about it, mentioned the bomb. And either thinking that there was going to be some, you know, horrific sort of life underground in a sort of post-nuclear world or wholesale discovery destruction. And one small boy in Chicago, and this is a quote that appears a couple of times in the book, in Chicago begged his mother, please mother, can't we go someplace where there isn't any sky? And so what you have then, if we're thinking about these big changes over time, you're moving from hand-to-hand combat, you're moving to something, combat that is increasingly technologized, that is about, it's about tanks, it's about artillery, it's then about planes and dropping bombs on cities and, you know, using the tactic of fear to fight a a war in that sense, to something that actually has no global limits, that a bomb that can be sent, you know, from the other side of the world. And I think this is something that we're, we're seeing today. You know, we're seeing the, you know, early experiments in putting, you know, weaponry up in space. Uh, as well uh, today it's very very sort of very terrifying, but I thought it's fascinating to sort of think about that in in re- across the sort of what the French historians would call the long and think about how fear associated with with war has changed. and you think about the you know you could think about this in terms of chivalry and codes of military honor and all of those kinds of things that are that are cultural social codes. Military codes that that encourage people not to be fearful, encourage bravery. You know the medals, the whole sort of material culture of it. Um, but at the root of it, there is still this visceral, physical reaction to killing people.
1: Very good. Um, I just want to—I think I'll sum up everything we've said, but I also want to just pick you up on a couple of things, which was really interesting. One was the um, the poor chap in the Second World War who was urinating, trembling, and sweating. Yeah. And uh, what, one of the there's a history here of trying to explain the symptoms of fear, and I mentioned Aristotle very briefly, but he believed in um, b- balance. Everything had to be balanced. He believed in opposites. So if there was hot, there had to be cold. If there something was wet, it had to be dry. And he understood fear um, as the, almost the opposite of anger, hmm. where anger you've got blood radiating away from the heart. Um, You think of yourself being uh, red in the face um, and being overtaken by a kind of full body fury. But fear is the opposite, he believed, with blood contracting towards the heart, making people cold, shivery, sweaty, trembling uh, and urinating as well was another symptom, Um, which I think is really interesting, the way that it was explained in the ancient world. Um, Galen, another Greek thinker, also believed in balances um, and he believed that in, in some cases, the the, the balance of um, being able to control your thoughts and feelings, it was so sort of off kilter that some people even feared imaginary things. And what I quite like about this is the idea of who's, who's to blame for fear. So in this ancient method, it's your fault because... Your body, well, not your foot, but your body is imbalanced, and that is the why you are fearful of things rather than something happening to you by someone else. Which really made me think of those poor children yeah. um, who were so terrified of the war and the fear of the kids as well. That's a really interesting uh, history in its own right. And it really it made me immediately think of nursery rhymes, yeah. um, the, the horrific nursery rhymes where you've got. I've, I found a little list of, of what happens to children on the British Library's website. So here we've got um, one single collection of nursery rhymes in the 19th century. They It was analysed and it was found to, to consist of eight murders, two by choking, one decapitation, seven cases of severed limbs, beatings, falls, pecked off noses, uh, religious persecution, plague and torture. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got Cinderella's stepsisters who chop off their toes and heels to make their feet fit the glass slipper. Um, stilt skinny splits in half when he stamps his foot in fury after the queen guesses his name. Um, wolves are boiled or have their bellies split open and filled with stones. There are cruel giants, shoes that dance you to death, wicked witches, murderous husbands, burials, ghosts, changelings, any numbers of curses and spells. And I think what's going on here, you know, it's this is a, a very different thing. W- you were talking about children and the war, but here you've got kids who? Um, what are people deliberately using fear to control children? Um, there's one story I discovered of um, a, a, a disobedient girl who who sets fire to herself. It's very, very gruesome indeed in the history of the Fairchild family in just 1818. And it, and this this poor girl sets fire to herself because she's. Um, The flame catches her dress and up she goes. But in the same story, the children, these (laughs) poor children in the family, they are whipped, (laughs) deprived of food and taken to see a dead body hanging on display. Um, Now, there's a whole... uh, um history of social norms and expectations here. And also I think um, it's to do with with religion. Um, there's also a great deal of fear in religion. If you do not follow these beliefs, if you do not and it's in this way, then these things will happen to you. And that actually is one of the reasons that um um stories of ghosts have survived. Think about what happens in the Bible. I mean, Jesus comes back to life. It's completely terrifying. And then he promises he's going to come back again for the second time. Um, and this this whole belief in reincar- um, reincarnation is very real. Um, and it's also linked with this idea of, um, um, you know, you, these poor people wandering the earth because they did not behave themselves in a certain way during their lifetime. So there you go. Hmm.
2: I have for you, Sam, hmm. um, a quiz. Hmm. Um, so, the, uh, a bewildering number of famous historical leaders have had fears. So, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to name the leader, and you're going to come see if you can guess the fear. Right, so, brilliant, so love f- it. First up is Franklin D. Roosevelt. He was afraid of pigeons. He was f- afraid of fire. Uh, oh. And this can be traced, apparently, to um, when he was a young child... His uh, aunt Laura came running down the stairs of the house with her dress ablaze from a spilled alcohol lamp. Hmm. Um, Interesting. So, yes. Um, Genghis Khan, you'll probably know this one. Oh, no. He was uh, claustrophobic. Ah, he may well have been. Uh, but he, apparently, he also hated dogs. <laughs> he was scared of dogs. Um, wow. OK. Um, OK, go on. Kim Jong the second, so North Tweezers. Korean dictator tweezers flying flying <laughs> okay. hated hated flying uh, he travelled instead on an armoured train even on Ooh. very very long visits um next is henry the 8th i'm slightly dubious about this one but henry the 8th uh
1: flapjacks
2: he uh, he was not f- afraid of flapjacks uh he, <laughs> he he probably loved them um uh, apparently afraid 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 of disease uh okay, it it right. says um i'm i i imagine most people are afraid of disease um okay next one augustus caesar according to the roman historian suetonius founder augustus of the roman caesar, empire
1: caesar, yes he was uh, afraid of any animal that hopped
2: no he was afraid oh. of lightning uh mm. he narrowly escaped a bolt of lightning uh mm. that struck very nearby uh and killed a slave uh, who oh. was walking ahead with a torch? That so he was so very to. superstitious about that.
1: Um, I, could got, I could have got two of these.
2: Heraclius, uh, so Ooh. the Byzantine emperor, great victory over the Persians. He
1: he was. Oh, what was he afraid of? Um, light bulbs. No, light bulbs had not been invented <laughs> uh, at that point. He was
2: he was afraid of water. Uh, oh. Apparently, uh, here we are. Uh, next up is Peter the Great. Peter the Great. Wolves. Uh, very close. Uh, insects mm. and high ceilings. He had a was said <laughs> to have had a a, dis, a particular dislike for cockroaches.
1: OK. I, I can, I can, high I, ceilings.
2: I can understand that, yes. I'm not sure where they... Uh, a mild fear of open spaces as well. Um, now, next up, Winston Churchill.
1: Ooh. Um,
2: Germans. No, this is a, <laughs> this is a real uh, teaser for you. Public speaking. Uh, the yeah. great orator uh, was apparently, uh, when he was a newly elected uh, MP, aged 29, stood up to give a speech in the House of Commons and froze in utter, utter terror. Uh, mm. And then from that day on, decided he would never, that would never happen to him again. Um, Adolf Hitler. Uh, this is something oh. I share with the um, Nazi leader.
1: Oh, you share. Um, you are afraid of... Uh... My- Crowded spaces.
2: No, I'm not not afraid of crowds. However, I am afraid, as with Hitler, of dentists. Um, mm. Hitler was terrified of dentists. And, um, he had terrible teeth. Apparently, terrible teeth, uh, appalling gums, abscesses and terrible halitosis. So really bad breath. Now, uh, it's something I share with um, Colonel Gaddafi uh, as well. So that, that, this is our last one. <laughs> Good. Um, tea bags. A former Libyan dictator. Um, no, I'm a. I don't. I don't drink tea very often. Uh, but I'm not. Drink. I'm not phobic of it. I thought you um, were. I thought no, you were I prefer coffee. But heights. Oh, okay. The man. Um. Oh. It, it was terrified of heights. And the history of heights has a fascinating history. I was doing a little bit of research about this because I thought that. Um. I thought that. Um. That I had vertigo, uh, and vertigo is in fact a medical condition. Uh which is where you start feeling dizzy uh mm. when when you are up a height, but in fact that that that's not what um a that's not what the fear of heights is at all a fear of heights is actually acrophobia mm. uh which is what I have a really weird sort of um you know feeling of heights, and there are various people you know across history who have you know who have feared. Fear heights. Apparently, um, when Hannibal was crossing the Alps, uh, one of the biggest enemies uh, was the dizzying heights of crossing oh. crossing these sort of mountain ranges. I'm going
1: to say he was afraid of elephants, which would have been no, a really bad but thing. But one
2: of one of the weird one of the weird things. Those of you who I don't know whether you you you, you said you suffer from fear of heights. Um, one of the things is it's actually feeling that you are. It's not a rational fear. It is literally a feeling that you are. Going to throw yourself off,
1: hmm. you know,
2: and um, I was reading an article about this the other day, um, and you know there is quite a history of people who feel that they are drawn to heights like that um, and you know and have it has a strange sort of a strange sort of response to them it 's something that the French existentialists you know talked about being drawn towards the void. Um, and that this is this is ultimately the the sort of the real existential test of human freedom whether you live or you die, and I've just been reading Robert Macfarlane's Underland, which is a brilliant new book. Uh, he normally talks about everything above ground about mountains and wild places. This is basically about what lies beneath our feet, and there are two brilliant chapters there, where one of which he talks about Paris, and under the city in Paris, and he explores. Um, a phenomenon of urban explorers—these people who basically go into um, deserted uh, urban cityscapes and kind of and explore underground—and also um, extreme caving and free diving. And one of the things there is about how um, people are just drawn to explore and drawn into these these voids. And there's this one. One bit where he talks about being down in this sort of in this cave underneath this mountain, and he goes down with a guide and he finds himself at this sort of huge opening. And he almost has this out of body experience where he sort of gets sucked, sucked into it. So I suppose we end with the sort of the the fear of not being able to control oneself.
1: Ooh, that's very good. Isn't that good? Like not being able to stop talking, James.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
1: That's <laughs> that's that, that, that's that's something I'm never I'm never fearful of. That I can I can talk forever, for hours. Wonderful. Guys, I, I hope you enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. That was very good fun. Um, we've got all sorts of wonderful things coming up. We're doing The History of Humiliation and Sharks and Running Away. Those are the next ones. And on leather. List. And leather. Um, <laughs> so uh, we're, we're both really looking forward to doing some research and entertaining you with some stories of unexpected histories. Um, do please check us out online at historiesoftheunexpected.com. Find everything. Um, that we've done in the past and our books and details of all of our fun stuff, do please follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell, And the podcast is at UnexpectedPod. Um, Do please get in touch and um, send us ideas for future episodes and send us thoughts on your own histories of fear. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Bye. Bye, guys.